I received a fascinating complaint letter that is, uh, which it was a great letter, especially relevant on this uh, Resurrection Sunday. The note was from an All the Difference radio listener uh, who was working through a series that I taught last fall. It was our annual theme series, Reformed, and the particular issue that bothered this guy was Solus Christus. His letter concerned Solus Christus, which is Latin for Christ alone. That's your fancy Latin phrase for the day, boys and girls. You get to say Solus Christus on the count of three. One, two, three. Solus Christus. Very good. All right, here's, here's what it means in our tongue. Solus Christus is Christ alone. It's shorthand for the biblical idea that every person we relate to the triune God through Messiah, that is Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. It's the same, same word. Through Messiah Jesus alone. Got it? All right, well, the All the Difference radio listener who wrote didn't get it. He had real trouble with that. He didn't care at all for the idea that he needed Jesus to properly relate to God. Didn't like that at all. Here's my favorite line from his note. He wrote and said, Wayne, you're so smart when you talk about Marcus Aurelius. Do more on Roman history and less on the Bible. Why do you need to discuss Jesus as so exclusive? Can't he just be part of the path of light? Close quote. It's a very good question. Is Jesus exclusive? Here's what I told him. First, I shared Jesus' own statement on exclusivity, John chapter 14, verse 6. Would you read it with me? You, you read with me the underlined text, if you would. John 14, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thank you. Very good. Messiah Jesus himself claimed salvific exclusivity. No one comes to God but through him. However, I wanted to do more for our Marcus Aurelius fan. I wanted him to understand why it was in his soul that he didn't want Jesus to be exclusive. So to learn that, we turn to one of the most famous and longest-lasting songs ever written, the Messianic poem that we call Psalm 2. Let's do the same thing that I did with this guy. Let's examine the truth about Messiah in the prophetic second psalm. Turn there in your Bible, if you would, or look up at the screen, and let's read Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rebel? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. Close quote. This psalm starts with a brilliant description of how people want to be their own gods. There are really important things being observed and predicted in this psalm. First, people who want to be their own gods. People who want to be their own gods. First thing, they conspire against the Messiah. By the way, that's the headline you find in your notes. You got a bulletin when you came in, right? If you open that up, it may help you as we study together. You'll see printed in the middle there your notes. On the left side, you'll see this headline, they conspire against the Messiah. See the phrase, the anointed one or his anointed one in our text? That's a Hebrew euphemism for Messiah. Messiah is that Hebrew term the Greeks translated Christ. Here's why his anointed one or the anointed one is so very important. All right, listen. Prophets in in Hebrew life, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed. They're anointed with oil as a symbol of God's Holy Spirit empowering them. But the Messiah, the Messiah is predicted to fulfill all three roles, prophet, priest, and And king. Thus, he is described in your Bible as the anointed one or God's anointed one. All right? He ultimately is going to be in charge of every aspect of life social, prophet, uh, uh, spiritual, priest, and political king. Every aspect of life. 
And that's why all peoples of all times and places conspire against the Messiah. Listen, we don't like his exclusivity because everyone wants to be their own independent God who makes his own way of salvation. With regards to salvation, all human beings are a little bit like Frank Sinatra singing, I did it my way. Right? That's us. It's true of every person. We all hate to be told that we need a Savior. That's why one of our earliest sentences, every human being, one of your earliest sentences was, I do it. Right? I do it. Not me. All people reactively declare in that tantrum voice of a two-year-old, I don't need no prophet, priest, or king over me. Right? And such was certainly true for me. When I was a, a young man, I went to church, but I wanted to make my own way of salvation. I, I thought that I was good and smart, and I figured the anointed one was only needed by bad and dumb people. And then at camp, a counselor showed me that I wasn't so smart. He opened the Bible and he showed me the truth that I can't do it my way, that I make a hilariously weak God, that no one comes to salvation of a relationship with God the Father except through faith in Jesus, the only way, the anointed one. And in response, I repudiated my impossible desire for godhood. I stopped rebelling against Messiah, and I trusted Jesus. Now, though everyone conspires against Messiah, some examples are really graphic. For example, this time of year, we often think of the scene where Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council. You know that in, that in that scene in your Bibles, the Sanhedrin so conspires against Messiah that they violate both both. Roman and Jewish law in an attempt to stop Jesus from establishing his messianic kingdom. A few months ago, I got another letter. This one's from a church friend, a guy named Dale, and he noted this about that illegal trial, that conspiring against Jesus. Look what Dale wrote me. This is fascinating. He said, Wayne, in my reading this morning, I noticed Leviticus 21.10, quote, the priest who is highest among his brothers, who's had the anointing oil poured on his head and has been ordained to wear the garments, he must not dishevel his hair or tear his garments. But I was thinking of Jesus' trial where, quote from Mark 14, the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? I found this contrast interesting. What a great observation. I wrote him back this. I said, wow, Dale never thought about it. First, it proves how they were hell-bent on throwing off Messiah's leadership, Psalm 2. Second, the Levitical injunction has to do with steady hands at the helm of the ship. We, we want genuine emotion from our leader, but we need him to be under control. Since self-control is fruit of the Spirit, the leader managing his emotions strengthens our trust in Yahweh. We're not talking about masking, but, but faithfulness to see past momentary tragedy. Probably Mark is emphasizing for us that Jesus is the ultimate leader in that room, or in any room. Of course, even though I hadn't considered Dale's observation before God had, look, it was there in Psalm 2 all along. They conspire against Messiah, the only one who is truly in charge, the only one who keeps his cool. There's a second aspect to how people express our desire to be our own gods. They choose to see God as restrictive, restrictive. This is a reflexive reaction. It always accompanies uh, somebody's rejection of the need for salvation. I want to share with you some quotes. These are from actual conversations I have had just recently with non-Christians, okay? One non-Christian looked at me and said, well, what about my desire to live in a way the Bible calls sin? If God calls that wrong, that makes God restrictive, right? Here's another one. Uh, what about the millions who have died without trusting Jesus? That makes God mean, uh, or this one, the Bible says God elects people to be his. That is exclusive. I don't like it. As we'll see in a moment, God is not restrictive. He's actually a refuge. But people don't want to believe that. We find it easier to paint God as the bad guy. It's an especially convenient foil to keep from addressing our own sin. 
Surely you have experienced this as a teenager or with a teenager, right? Think about the classic teenage argument, right? The parent says, honey, that guy is flat out evil. He is a drugged up womanizer. You cannot date him. What's the typical teen response? You're just trying to control my life, right? If you really loved me, you'd let me do whatever I want. Now, it's, it's absurd to the point of funniness, right? It's ridiculous. Not, not while you're in the throes of those fights, of course. It's very painful. But when you look back as a mature and healthy adult, when you look back at your teenagehood, you laugh at the nonsense that came out of your mouth, right? That's exactly what we see next in Psalm 2. Look, look at verses 4 through 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. In response to human nonsense, the Messiah reigns. By the way, that's the title atop the right side of your notes. On the right side of your notes, the Messiah reigns. He laughs because he is in charge. Ridicules in verse 4 is especially easy to misunderstand in our English translations. This is not bullying. This is not picking on someone. The root word, lahog, means to snort or, or laugh over a threat that is actually no threat. Lahog is to smile because your enemy can't really accomplish anything against you. God laughs because he knows that human efforts to dethrone him are infinitesimally small. Steven Spielberg gave us a fantastic example of Lahog in his movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay? Think about Lahog and watch this. You see the lahog, the smile of just disdain on Indiana Jones' face. Friends, when, when we take on Messiah and we try to be our own gods, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight, okay? There's a singer named Natalie Grant. She recently paired with two poets, Sam and Becca Mizell, to produce a great response to this Messiah who is indeed in charge. Here's what they wrote. I think it's just beautiful. I tried to fit you, God, in, in the walls inside my mind. I tried to keep you safely in between the lines. I've tried to put you in a box that I designed. I tried to pull you down so we're eye to eye. When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? I try to take life back, I take life back right out of the hands of the king of the world. How could I make you so small when you're the one who holds it all? When did I forget that you've always been the king of the world? Just a whisper of your voice can tame the seas. So who am I to try to take the lead? This is the meaning of solus Christus. He is the one true king, the greatest prophet, the high priest who alone makes a way for people to have a relationship with God. That's why I answered our Marcus Aurelius fan with John 14, 6. Jesus is not part of anything. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is in charge. After all, he was installed as king in Jerusalem. Such is the point of the prophecy in Psalm 22, verse 6. Look at it. I have consecrated my king on Zion, my holy mountain. On Good Friday, Messiah Jesus was crucified with a crown of thorns marking him. That's why our Good Friday logo this year included a crown of thorns underneath his beautiful crown. Little did those mockers in the Antonia Fortress know that they were fulfilling Scripture when they pressed that wicked symbol on his head. But they were doing God's exact bidding. 
because the anointed one was prepared to be the perfect sacrifice. He had to die to pay for the sin of all who trust him. That's why a crown that draws, draws blood is the perfect crowning for one who is king by virtue of sacrifice. Isaiah described the prophetic situation beautifully. Read it with me, would you please? Isaiah 53, you join me on the underlined text. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thank you. Jesus was crucified on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, and it was indeed the first part of his coronation. That, that's, why, that's why God inspired Pilate to write King of the Jews above his cross. But he didn't stay dead, did he? No, indeed. He is risen. He, is risen he rose from the dead as Scripture had predicted. He conquered death. So all who trust him are not merely rescued from sin. They are saved to everlasting life. All God's people said? I was once at Carnarfon Castle in Wales. That's where the Prince of Wales is always crowned. Everyone there buzzes over the pageantry and the import of the, of the installation of the monarch. And yet there I learned something very interesting. Carnarfon isn't the only coronation that a British monarch goes through. Do you know that? He's also crowned atop the Stone of Scone, which is now in Scotland again, and at Westminster Abbey. In a similar way, the resurrection is the next, next aspect of Jesus' coronation. He was installed as king on Mount Zion in his crucifixion. And when he rose from the dead, when he conquers death on Easter Sunday, he becomes the risen king. And further, he will return again as promised, and he will establish his perfect kingdom, which will be the final aspect of his installation as the Christ king. And even now, he is enthroned. Did you see that in verse 4 of our text? The one enthroned in heaven. He is ruling as almighty king. Now, with all that in mind, understanding everything we've just learned about the Messiah, I want you to listen to some brilliant lyrics. These are by Rich Mullins a number of years ago based on Psalm 2. Here's what he wrote. Look at this. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scheme? Their bullets can't stop the prayers we pray in the name of the Prince of Peace. We walk in faith and remember long ago how they killed him and then how on the third day he arose. Well, things may look bad and things may look grim, but all these things must pass except the things that are of him. Where are the nails that pierced his hands? Well, the nails have turned to rust. But behold, the man, he's risen, and he reigns in the hearts of his children, rising up in his name. The Lord in heaven laughs. He knows what is to come. While all the chiefs of state plan their big attacks against his anointed one, the church of God, she will not bend her knees to the gods of this world, though they promise her peace. She stands her ground. She stands firm on the rock. Watch their walls tumble down when she lives out his love. Where are the thorns that drew his blood? Well, the thorns have turned to dust, but not so the love he has given. No, it remains in the hearts of the children who will love while the nations rage. Brilliant. Rich understood the truth about Messiah in Psalm 2. Silly people, silly people who mock God, who rage against the anointed Messiah. He's actually for you. That's why his love remains. And in fact, he has suffered and sacrificed just to serve you. Let's quickly look at the last section of our psalm. I'll show you, I'll show you how this fleshes out. Uh, verses 7 through 12. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the Son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. Messiah's royal decree is servanthood. All who take refuge in him are happy. They're blessed as opposed to the misery of those who rage against him. There are three aspects to this blessing in our text. I'm going to cover these fairly quickly. First is that he is declared the Son. Now, look at this. Though he is equal with Father and Spirit, Messiah chooses a role of servanthood. You see, and this illustration is flawed as all are, but it's close enough. The Bible shows us the truth that God exists as one God in three equal persons. They exist in equal triunity, but as three distinct persons. Thus, God the Father is not the Son and He is not the Spirit, but He is God. Do you understand? I bring that up because Psalm 2 shows us the humble submission of the anointed one. Look what the Son did. He elects to take on this role of Son, a willing submission that had to occur for humankind to be rescued. Think it through. No declaration of sonship, no declaration of sonship in verse 2, that means no anointed one. No Messiah means no salvation for humans. This guy that the world wants to disdain, this fully God the Son who took on full humanity as Messiah, he's actually here to serve you. He's given up more than you can imagine just to make it possible, the only way possible for you to be saved in a relationship with God. That's what it means when the text tells us that he has declared the Son. And, of course, he also will exercise his authority, right? I mean, he must. He must in order to be just. To be the just king, he has to. That's the point of verses 8 through 10. Look, when Jesus is ultimately crowned and enthroned on earth in his final kingdom, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So the wise respond to him now. Because it's right to bow before the king. And because this king loves you more than you can understand. That's why he became weak. The son come to earth, the anointed one who died. And even in that weakness, Messiah Jesus reveals his true strength and authority. In fact, most of his strength is revealed through weakness. Os Guinness examined this in his book, uh, Fool's Talk, 2015. He wrote this, He, God, simultaneously shamed and subverted the vaunted wisdom, strength, and superiority of the world through the cross. Shaming and subverting the world's wisdom through folly, the world's strength through weakness, the world's superiority through the coming in disguise as a non-entity. Thus, we see a little baby lying defenseless in the crib at Bethlehem and a tortured man hanging utterly derelict on a Roman cross outside Jerusalem. But those who believe that is all there is to it, they've only taken a surface glance at what's happening and they have misread what's really going on in the incarnation and the cross. Look more closely. Ask who the baby is, why the tortured man is dying. And you see that everything is happening, everything that is happening is far more than it appears to be. And as you pause and ponder, the self-chosen powerlessness the self-chosen powerlessness can suddenly be seen as a higher power. Jesus is the higher power. That's what Messiah is, something that can be seen through his self-directed weakness. And as the power, he, will, he must exercise his authority. So don't be a fool. The Messiah's royal decree is servanthood. He died and rose from the grave for you. Thus, verse 12, he is a refuge for all who trust in him. I love the rhythm of the old King James in verse 12. Uh, King James Bibles puts it this way, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. 
It only takes a tiny hint of his appropriate wrath as the authority, and you are consumed. Therefore, accept his offer of refuge now. The truth is the Messiah accepts all who trust him. He is the way, the truth, the life, the one who made a way forever for all who trust him. He allows you and me, you know what he allows? He allows you and me to be blessed forever through a relationship with God the Father. We who trust Messiah, we who receive what he did for us on the cross and over the grave, we get a new relationship. We become God's children. He is truly our Father. Look like how the Apostle John summarized it. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John's addressing Christians, people who have believed on Messiah Jesus, and he declares that because of who Messiah is, we have become who we are, children of God, blessed in our refuge. Please, please take the opportunity that is before you. Trust Jesus and enter God's refuge. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone who is looking at your text with me today but has not believed in Jesus, has not trusted him as Savior. I ask you to draw them to you just as you did me. Friend, listen. Jesus is fully Messiah. That's what Psalm 2 is showing you and me. He is God the Son. And He died to pay the price for your sin, which you cannot pay because you're not holy as He is. And He rose from the grave so that everyone who trusts Him could follow Him in everlasting life. Trust Him right now. Receive the refuge that He alone offers, the life that He alone can give. Just confess to God right now. I believe in Jesus. I put my trust on Him and Him alone for my salvation. I understand at least a little of who the Messiah is, and I am so grateful for what He's done for me, installed as King. And I want to live under His rule. I receive Jesus. My dear fellow sinner, saved by God's grace, if you trusted Jesus this morning, if you just prayed to receive his refuge, raise your hand right now. Look up at me and raise your hand so I can rejoice with you. Good for you. Amen. Beautiful. Father, I pray for myself, I pray for all of these Christians, both very new and long term, that we will respond to your rule in our lives, that we will understand what it means that Jesus is the resurrected King, the Messiah. And we will live under his authority. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.